This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 48. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A on novels and series. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And, and we're not that smart. Hey, you did it. <laughs> Good job. You were that smart. You <laughs> are that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Piper. I'm Dan. And I'm Brian. Brian McClellan is joining us on the podcast again. Thank you so much, Brian, for being here. Yay. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. It just gives me ample opportunities to make fun of you. Um, <laughs> That's the real reason. <laughs> that is. Here. Dang it. <laughs> so if I join in, there will be no hard feelings, right? No. Give us good to get. You, the, the beard is shorter. I'm used to you looking a little more George Martin-esque. I got cleaned yeah. up recently, mm-hmm. you know, just for you, Brandon. All right. So we're taking questions from our wonderful listeners. And Anna asks, how do you write an ending that gives a sense of closure but still leaves it open for more stories? Ooh. Open but not a cliffhanger. Open but not a cliffhanger. I think that is indeed what she's asking. Yeah, well, I think the, the thing you need to remember is that the, your ending needs to be satisfying. And a great example of this is the first Star Wars movie, meaning the fourth Star Wars movie, mm. um, A New Hope, which ends with, you know, they have done what they set out to do. Spoiler warning, they blow up the Death Star and they get awards for it and it's awesome and it feels satisfying. It feels like they've accomplished something real and it could stand on its own. But there's still plenty of other things going on. You know, Darth Vader got right. away. The Empire still exists. All these other things. And so there's totally room for it, but you don't feel like you're missing out. You don't feel like there's a cliffhanger because they did what they set out to do and it was satisfying. Right. My recommendation, and this comes from a romance section where a lot of romance authors tend in the first book to introduce a cast. And the idea there is that there is a central hero and heroine or trio or quadruple, depending on the story, but you have your central romance and you have this cast of really, really strong supporting characters. And so the end is a very satisfying, happily ever after. And yet, you know, these supporting characters could have stories of their own. And and that's how a romance author sets up for a future series when it's very character-based. I've read a lot of anticipation from romance readers who are like, we're finally getting to this person's book, right? Where the first book introduces all these people who uh, are going to have different styles of romances and you eventually get to the one that was your favorite or whatnot. I've actually had, and I hope we have time for this, but mm-hmm. I actually have had a gauntlet thrown down at me from a foreign forum of readers mm-hmm. um, in which they fell in love with my support, one of my supporting characters from the Triton Experiment series, and um, his name was Boggle. And they loved him so much, they challenged me to keep him exactly the way he was in the novella. Don't put him through any kind of hero makeover, you know, no extreme makeover, no physical makeover, but find him and build him a romance just for Boggle. Mm. And I did it. Awesome. It's out there. <laughs> I, I think a big part of it is uh, is really just wrapping up a majority percentage, maybe, of the plot lines going on, mm-hmm. both the small plot lines and the big ones, uh, but having uh, tantalizing bits here and there. And if you are writing the first in a planned series, you know, you'll have the great arc that maybe isn't even introduced yet. Uh, but yeah, wrapping up that kind of most of everything is going to be your best bet. Yeah, I'd say the other big thing you can do is um, increase the scope 
in the la- in like the epilogue or whatnot. Meaning, mm-hmm. this is the we have defeated the villain we set out to defeat, but we discover that this villain is part of a much larger network, and we have a larger task about us. Just don't do that too many times, right? What you want to do is use the first book as a standalone microcosm for how the series is going to progress, and then expand, and then do the larger story across several books. I think actually a great example of that is the uh, the Daniel Craig James Bond movies mm. uh, of doing it well and then doing it badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, AJ asks, if I write one book and it takes me a long time, should I put it out as a serial? I understand people put out serials or make their first book free to get people interested in sequels, but what if I don't plan on having a sequel? Is a serial a bad idea? I think this is a really interesting question because, uh, to give you some context, listeners, the serial is making a comeback. This is a larger story released in small chunks. Uh, We've talked a little bit about serials on the podcast, but there's really a renaissance going on now. Um, If you're interested in investigating, uh, Hugh Howey's Wool is one of the ones that a few years ago really took off as a serial. I'm going to say to you, AJ, um, you could put this out as a serial. Your model, and I have... Very little personal experience of this. Your model will be serialize it in that you try to make sure that your chunks are all satisfying on their own, and they are mini novels. If your book breaks well, that you have a nice climax and a hook and lead into the next section, you can split a large novel into, say, four different um, pieces and things like that. You release the first one at free or 99 cents, and then you release the others at 199 or 299. and your anticipation you're building is for the rest of that series. It becomes a series now. I'd agree. And I'd also say that while you want it episodic, because you want mm-hmm. people hooked on that episode, really like that episode, and look forward to what's going to happen next, um, you can also, because you're self-pubbing, play with the price of your first or second installment of your serial. So you can start it at 99 cents to get people hooked. But once you're about halfway through whatever number of episodes you have planned at the halfway point, you can do or run a promo where the first story is free to bring in a new influx of readers who are kind of going to binge. And then you're always going to have at the end of your whole serial release, people who are waiting for the whole thing because they prefer to binge. And at that time, you can also swap your 99% 99 deal to a freebie for the first, you know, the first hit is free. Yeah. So that people, and they know that the series is finished, so that they'll just read through the serials all on their own. So you can do yeah. those sales at different points in time in your sales cycle. Yeah. That's really smart. Yeah, I think this is this is a model that people are experimenting with and having a lot of success with. Um, I would argue that some things like on Amazon, Shade of Vampire, and some of the romance things are doing this as well. They are. It, it sounded a little to me like she was also asking if, uh, she can put out the first of a serial before finishing the novel because she said she was taking a long time to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I would not recommend that if that is what she's asking. Oh, good point, good uh, point. Because, you know, when you're writing a full story, you're going to go back and change little things at the beginning to make everything line up. Uh, and, and personally, so I would, I would avoid that. I would, yeah, he or she should, I would recommend that they finish the book in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Before... Releasing it in installments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you might you might be able to do the copy edit rounds, you know, as they go, but definitely have the f- book finished and at least your heavy duty yeah. round of edits done. This is the part where if Howard were here, he would say, luxury. <laughs> True. So, um, Ashley asks, 
For an unpublished writer, is it a waste of time to pitch a multi-book series, or should I focus on standalone works until I gain some traction? Dan and I have talked a lot on this idea. I'm curious what Piper and Brian have to say. Shall I go first? You go first. Um, you know, I, I sold my first book as a series. or mm-hmm. Yeah, I sold a, a single book that I had finished with two unfinished, with two not even touched novels with it. Uh, that was in 2012 that I sold those. I have no idea what editors are looking for and wanting right now. Um, I've heard that you better be super confident in it if you're going to try to sell a series. Um, and that, that it's safer to come to them and say, look, I've got this first book. It's uh, it's meant to be a series, but it could be a standalone. And if it, don't lie to them, if it is written like that, uh, you know, that they'll, they're more likely to take a look at it and then say, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we could do a series out of this. And you go from there with negotiations or whatever. Exactly. I would say it depends also on your market. Mm. Um, from a traditional publishing standpoint, it is really good to have a novel that could stand alone but also has series potential and state that in your submission query um, or to your agent um, and your agent pitches it, what have you. But the bottom line is that it is a standalone novel that has series potential and you already have outlines for the future novels if you'd like to discuss. Whereas digital... You could go standalone, especially depending on the genre and, and what's intended for that, especially if there's a call for submissions. A lot of digital submissions, I'm sorry, digital publishers, their editors will have a call for submissions. And you could get a standalone in there, and then they might ask you whether it has serious potential or not. So it just depends on what plans do you have for your book. Yeah, I frequently say that... My experience has been every editor wants the book to be a standalone when they start it and wants it to be a series when they end. The reason for this is they're like normal people. They're like, I don't know if the author can pull this off. Let's just make sure that they can. And if they love the book by the end, they're like, I want more. This is how most readers are, I feel. So, uh, yeah, I think you guys covered that great. Um, So Rachel asks, how do you keep readers engaged and coming back for more between novels in a series? Teasers. Okay. You got to be a tease. Sorry. Um, (laughs) More hanky-panky from Piper. (laughs) Yes. Well, and the the trick with hanky-panky is to not always give them all of the hanky-panky. Uh-huh. Okay, you got to be a tease. So a lot of, what a lot of romance writers will do, and a lot of sci-fi, I think, is they will plan to release short stories in between. Um, And they don't have to be free or they could be free. Like, for example, I released a... um, a short story called Winter Valor that was part of my True Heroes series uh, as an incentive to kind of hold or tide my um, readers over in between the release of one full book and the next. Or you could find anthologies to be a part of in both the traditional publishing world and in digital publishing. In particular, quite a few digital publishers will put out a call for anthology submissions that are either shorts or novellas that you could put out. Or you could self-publish if you have the rights. And a great example of this is the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. T. Morris mm-hmm. and Pip Ballantyne um, mm-hmm. do the Tales from the Archives. And those Tales from the Archives are small, super short, steampunk shorts that kind of tide readers over in between the release of the bigger novels. And um, yeah, yeah, tease your readers so and they don't we, forget we did you. A, we did a promo on that, that series a little while ago, so go, go check that one out. Uh, now, this is something I know Brian does a lot or did yeah. with novellas. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I 
kind of struck on the idea a couple of years ago uh, between book one and book two of the Powder Mage trilogy and started doing short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually novellas when I realized people kind of wanted a little bit longer stuff. Um, and, uh, and people ate it up. And it was a great way to, you know, I had about nine months to a year between novels. And it was a great way to remind my readers I exist uh, and to remind them what's happening in the world uh, even if the the thing doesn't, or the novella or short story doesn't happen during that time period, it still gives them you know some sort of perspective. It says, "Oh, this is really cool. Here's some here's some more adventures of my favorite characters." Oh, you know, what? I think I'll go back and reread reread book one. Uh, you know, so it encourages them to you know grasp onto that. And I think especially with like epic fantasy, and I think different genres have different loyalties. Yeah, uh, definitely loyalty yeah. levels. And epic fantasy is one with very high loyalty level. So people will say, I will buy anything that's under this universe. Uh, though I will say that though we get a lot way with a lot in Epic Fantasy, being consistent is so important. Now you're gonna oh, yes. say, Brandon, I know some famous authors that are not consistent. I I know, I know there are some <laughs> famous authors who are not consistent. I am not consistent uh, with books in a series sometimes, but particularly when you're starting out. The readers will wait in Epic Fantasy, but they want to know, are these one a year? Are these one every two years? Are these one every 18 months? Let them know, be consistent on that, and you will have more success. Yeah. Now, on this topic, I do want to to jump in as a guy who basically doesn't give readers anything in between books, that you don't have to yeah. do any of this stuff if you don't mm-hmm. want to. Um, the one time I tried it, I did a, a John Cleaver novella uh, in between three and four, and... What I've found is that that is popular among the super fans, and the mm-hmm. super fans aren't really the ones who need that. It's more of a reward for them rather than let's yeah. keep your interest to high. No, let's. And so yeah. you you don't have to do this if it sounds overwhelming or if it sounds like too much. Sure. Let's it's just point out that uh, some of the publishers, Dan's uh, YA publisher and mine, both for a long time were hardcore and this is how we're going to keep interest in a series and they mm-hmm. contractually required short stories from us. I know you did one. Yeah, I actually did a couple different mm-hmm. things for the partial series and it never they, worked. They, 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 it, it never it, worked. It felt manufactured. Yeah. I did one for the Reckoners. It didn't work with the publisher requiring it in the contract. You know, it just didn't didn't yeah. pan out. I and and I think that what Brian was talking about with genre is a big thing here. Not only genre, but medium. If you're in epic fantasy and you have that kind of high buy-in to a world, that's very different from me selling supernatural thrillers and, oh, here's another little minor story. Um, if you are self-published and you're selling directly straight from you to your fans, it's much easier to put that out. And I think the fans are more primed to receive it. Oh, here's another short story. Um, in something like the the stuff that I've done, the kind of bigger traditional published series in in thriller genres, it just doesn't work as well. One thing I've seen from two different romance authors is um <clears throat> is that they'll take deleted chapters, like outtakes, and they'll make them available on their website. So you don't have to go through yeah. the 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 creative factor of writing the short story, but you still give something that's there for people to look mm-hmm. for. Well and and frankly stuff like this, I know he's telling me I need to shut up, but you can keep in touch with your readers through stuff that is not fiction as well. Yes, we're at 15 minutes and we haven't done the book of the week yet. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Um, Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, <laughs> book of the week is going to be uh, Hungry Ghosts. Yes. Tell Ryan, us about tell it. us about so, it. Hungry Ghosts is the third book in the Eric Carter series by uh, Stephen Blackmore. It's an absolutely awesome uh, urban fantasy series that I adore. Uh, it's very dark. If if you like the darker aspects of the Dresden Files, uh, you would love this. It's about a necromancer who lives in L.A., uh, in modern-day L.A., who gets involved, basically, with the goddess of death. Uh, and it's super cool. The third book uh, came out uh, in February of 17, and uh, it's just the whole series is awesome. They're great, like, airplane reads, you know, four or five hours, real quick, you know, that good at urban fantasy stuff. And he's totally underappreciated, so check that out. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. Um, uh, I'm going to pitch a fast one at you. I think you guys will be able to get this. Are we sure it's fast? Ariana asks, for a first-time author, should a series be completed before looking for an agent, or is the first book enough? First book. First book. First book. Yep. Um, do, it's hard to sell on proposal as a new author. It is. Published authors often do this. As a new author, mm-hmm. finish your first book, and then you're good. Lizzie asks... Do you ever find that you have this great outline for a trilogy, but when you go to write it, you find you've written the story for all three books in a short period of time? How do I fix this? Am I cutting too much? Am I missing more subplot? Um, the only person I know that's had problems with things like this is our short story writer friend, Eric James Stone. And when he wrote his first book, it came in at like 40,000 words um, in a thriller genre. I may be exaggerating, but he had to add a ton. Um, and I would say... He, this the problem is this might not be a bad thing. You may just have written a really awesome novel that has all the cool things from a trilogy in it, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's the case. Give it to test readers. If they read it and they're like, feels like this is just moving too fast, which is entirely possible they will, then you want to look at subplots. You want to look at adding character plots to each some of your characters so they have something they're trying to achieve that is separate from the plot. You want to have more viewpoints from other characters. You want to expand this. I think also, aside from subplots, it could be an issue of try-fail cycles. It could mm. be that your characters are accomplishing their goals too quickly and too easily, and you need to make it harder on them. Yeah, but don't, don't add things for the sake of adding things, because mm-hmm. uh, you see that a lot in especially books in, in genres that have longer books in them. You have people just cramming in more stuff that bogs down the story, uh, and don't don't worry, do, don't do that. I'm I'm definitely a proponent of the beta reader feedback. Ask them if they don't already give you the feedback. Who did you want to know more about? Who may have confused you with their choices, or you would have appreciated why they did what they did? And there's most likely in a concise story some more character development that you could do that the readers would appreciate, even though it might not have been absolutely necessary for the story. It may enrich the story to be right. able to go into some of that, the, what drove your character to make the choice they made. I mean, the other option is, if, in certain genres, add another set piece, right? Yeah. You may not have, if your readers are reading the book and get, not being fulfilled, it just isn't, isn't awesome enough, another set piece. This happens in thrillers a lot. We're like, we need to go to this cool place to get this special thing. Mm-hmm. And 
you then uh, go to that place yourself and write it off on your taxes and, uh, <laughs> and write a very inspired story about skydiving off of the Eiffel Tower or whatever. That's pretty much the entirety of Piper's travel hijinks <laughs> in my social media. All right. Um, we're going to do one last question. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that one's too easy. I'll just give it to you. Is it possible to write a uh, series as a discovery writer? Then we'll do another last question. Yes. 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 <laughs> it's hard, mm. uh, but you can do it. How, how yeah. did you do it, Dan? How would I do it? Yeah. As a discovery writer, I would make sure that first, before you start, that your ideas are big enough. You don't need to outline how the story is going to work, but make sure that you have a really big idea or a really deep character and then just explore it. Yeah. All right. Here's the question I was looking for. Rory asks, what are some specific examples you can give a foreshadowing and how it works on a longer piece of writing. Uh, this is tough stuff. It's one yeah. thing that you learn more and more as you write it, but it's an easy one to fix in post. And a lot of new writers miss this. Foreshadowing is the easiest thing to tweak when you've got a completed novel. Fixing a character arc is hard. <laughs> Having readers read and be like, oh, I didn't get see this coming. It's mm-hmm. easy. You just, uh, you know, Dave, who taught Dan and I some um, writing in college, said, <clears throat> make sure you foreshadow something three times. And I would go through if my alpha readers or beta readers were confused and say, okay, how many times have I foreshadowed this? Can I work in the foreshadowing? Remember the best foreshadowing works when the reader doesn't expect that it's foreshadowing. Yeah. If you can say, dun, 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 after the line, um, <laughs> then you have done it. be a little it. heavy-handed with You've the done frosting. it wrong. What you want to do is make them think you're foreshadowing something else. Um, you want them to assume that they have figured out why you've put this thing in. Uh, the classic yeah. example, spoilers, in Elantris is um, we have the shattering of the earth that happens where everyone assumes the magic went haywire. And because the magic went haywire, there are all these terrible things that happen, including breaking the earth. And so we put this in and everyone doesn't see it as foreshadowing when at the end you realize, oh, an earthquake actually broke the magic because the magic is based on the, the, the landscape and how the land looks. And so it's a reversal. You don't know it's foreshadowing. You think it's an effect, but not the cause. These are the ways that you want to get your foreshadowing slipped in. Yeah. This is what yeah. Brian was talking about earlier about how if you're going to serialize something, finish it first. Because this is what you need to go back and add. More often than not, what I am adding in revision is foreshadowing. And it's not, I'm going to drop a clue here. It's, oh, I'm going to explain this thing. You know, and I'm going to find a good reason to explain this thing, but I'm not going to dun-dun-dun it. And there's uh, actually a great example. This does not have to just be in mystery or suspense element type storylines. Uh, Courtney Milan writes historical romance, and in particular one of her novels, which I will have to come back to you with the name of the actual novel. Um, you're introduced to the heroine. The hero happens to be um, in a room, and he's mildly hiding because he wasn't supposed to be smoking in that room. And um, he sees her come in, and she wanders over to a chess table, and she picks up a chess piece, and she kisses it. And he has no idea why she does that de- gesture. And then through the course of the story, trying not to give spoilers, there's a significant moment in the middle of a courtroom where she touches her fingers to her lips the same way she would have touched a chess piece to her lips and gives him the signal that he should do the thing that could totally ruin their relationship but is the right thing to do. And that is a fantastic piece of foreshadowing that had nothing to do with mystery and everything to do with their relationship and the bigger picture of the story. And it was really well done. It's a great example. Yeah. I've always found uh, that if you do it right, foreshadowing and red herrings 
go well together mm-hmm. uh, because you take the attention away from that foreshadowing. I have this picture of you there. juggling red herrings down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you put it there and so that it's there and they see it, but their eyes are attracted to something else. And they say, oh, that's the big thing, but it's not. And, you yeah. know. This, this also reminds me of a, of a story about Michael Moorcock as he would write the Elric books that he would just make sure to add in five or six really cool, interesting ideas and then at the end decide which one of them was going to be the real one. Mm. Oh, yeah. um, and then you've got your foreshadowing and your red herring all wrapped up. Uh, JJ said the same thing. Really? Uh, Bad Robot, he talked about plotting and that's, that was almost identical to how he said he tries to make a plot work. That's awesome. Um, all right, so let's do the um, homework, which, again, I have written down. <clears throat> Dan does something weird. Yes. Okay, Wacky. so this is, this is Dan gets to be weird again. This is actually a game that uh, you will hear on a lot of comedy podcasts. And so in honor of, of this being our series, closing out our series idea, I want you to uh, take two books or two movies, get suggestions from friends, make sure that they are, you know, whatever weird things, and then... That is going to be part one and part three of a series, and you have to figure out what part two is in the middle. Awesome. That's fun. This it's has a been, lot of fun. This has <laughs> been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 